Hi, welcome to Stardust MQ, I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is Jaime Andreas Alvarado. My name is Jaime Andreas Alvarado. So I'm originally from Colombia, so that's why the long name. <laughs> Jaime is an expert in exoplanets. He has focused much of his research on the detection and the study of planets far beyond our own solar system. I had the opportunity to talk to, to Jaime about his work studying exoplanets, the astronomy scene in Colombia, and his most recent uh, project, Chronomoons, attempting to find exoplanetary moons indirectly through observation of their influence of the light curve from distant stars. So what got you into astronomy in the first place? Well, that's a... Uh like a funny story actually i wasn't like my the way i got into astronomy is not like almost everyone into astronomy that they're like oh i wanted to be an astronaut when i was a kid and no to me like for me it was very different like i i really like maths and physics i, I love everything that has to be like by solving puzzles and uh, equations numbers and all of this right and i was very good at that when i was at high school so in high school I, I decided that I wanted to do something related to physics and maths, right? So I started like looking at different things. So at some point I was going to study engineer. <laughs> I was going to be an engineer, but suddenly like I, I, my, my focus was mostly in physics, like in science, right? So I wanted to do science and I found out that one of the universities uh, in my country, in Colombia, had astronomy as an undergrad. Right, so it's very difficult to find astronomy as an undergrad. Usually, astronomy is like a, a part of the physics undergrad, and it's like just a small part, or it's just like a specialization or something like that. But in this case, astronomy is an undergrad in, in, in that university. So, and I, I looked at the pensum and all the program, and it was just awesome, right? It's just quantum physics, general relativity, lots of like amazing stuff. And I was, no, this is what I want to do. Like once I, I look at that. At the program of all the contents, I was in love with astronomy. It was like, you know, I want to be an astronomer. So actually, that was like after I finished high school, right? So it wasn't when I was a kid. It was I was already old enough, like to when I decided to go into astronomy. There's so many different paths to take in astronomy, right? So what what was it about exoplanets that really drew you to it to make you pursue it as a, as a research path? Yeah, well, the thing is that uh, I started working with my former supervisor in Colombia, Jorge, and he his focus is in exoplanets, right? He works with exoplanets and he's been doing this for a long time, right? Uh, he's an expert on this field. And I started working with him as a young researcher and there were other options, right? Like cosmology or astrostatistics and other, other fields too, right? But I decided to, to study exoplanets because I like that they're something like we know, right? Something like tangible, right? Something that, that we have experienced, like we live on one of them, right? We live on a planet, right? So I know that the stars, the galaxies, all of this is also amazing. Like I, I love everything about astronomy. But what I like about planets is that life as we know it lives on the planets, right? So planets are the ones who create life, right? And that's something that I find really, really interesting and amazing because 
you can have stars, yeah, you can have galaxies, yeah, and, and we know that at the end, everything is part of the same, right? Like everything is part of the same evolution. And at the end, after many, 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 many years, you will have a planet, but the light, light will, will be on that planet. So that's what I decided to stay with exoplanets because it's, it's something that creates life, right? Planets create life. And that's what I, I find really like amazing. So just just going to backtrack a bit. What's what is the astronomy field like in Colombia? Um, I, it's not something I've really looked into, so I'm, I'm curious to, to to know what your experience like was like. Uh, yeah, it's it's actually and not only this field. It's, it's something about like most of the fields in astronomy in Colombia is that we don't have like in in Colombia we don't have like the same like. Uh, outreach or we don't have the same like technology uh, level that has that australia uh, does right or other countries right so most of the fields in colombia are mostly theoretical right so there are astronomers we have many astronomers but most most people they are working from a theoretical perspective right because uh, there's not observatories for instance we don't have an observatory so going to an observatory and getting data getting images from galaxies or exoplanets, all of this, it's a bit more difficult, right? We will need to go somewhere else to do it, right? So most of the work there is theoretical. It's an amazing work. There are many very good astronomers there, but most of the work is, is, is from a theoretical perspective, right? And actually that's, that's one of the reasons why I decided to move here to Australia, right? Because when I finished my undergrad, uh, I had done many things, but most of them, actually all of them were theoretical. Right, all of them were just from a theoretical viewpoint, and I decided that I wanted to to explore more the observational part, right? Because so far until until then I didn't have that experience, right? I didn't have the, the observational part with that that is so important for an astronomer. As an astronomer, you need to observe, right? You need to to know how to do observations, right? How to observe your planets, your stars, your galaxies, and I didn't, I, I hadn't done that until that time. Right. So then I decided to come here because here we have an observatory, right? Is the, the Anglo-Australian telescope, right? Or uh, the project that I started working with was the Huntsman telescope. Yeah, I'm part of the Huntsman team, which is another telescope that is owned by Macquarie, right? And I could I, I could have like as many hours as I want with that telescope. So I've been working with that telescope for the last three, four years. And that that's given me a lot of things from the from the observational part of an astronomer. So so yeah. How is Huntsman going? Because I have spoken to Lee Spittler about it in the past, and um, <laughs> Sarah Caddy as well. And so I'm <laughs> I getting a bit of a, a quick update on on the, on the Huntsman telescope. Uh, well, like Huntsman is actually is doing pretty well. Like we have had uh, tons of problems and and things that they haven't gone so so well as as we we wished. But now, now the status of the telescope is that we're collecting data. We're collecting data. Uh, most of the cameras, remember that Huntsman is a telescope that is composed by many cameras, right? Many lenses, Canon lenses. So most, most of them, like nine out of 10 are working. So we, we put a lot of effort in the last two years to, to make it work. And it seems it's finally giving some results. So, so I think uh, we're we're gonna have a good a good chunk of data very soon, and then once we have that, well, the, the the next step will be analyzing all the data, right? But but yeah, 
Huntsman is, is it's getting there. We're almost 100% operational. It's just we, we need to do all the things, the small things that are you, you find along the way, right? But but yeah, we're getting there. It's almost almost on. Fantastic. That's good. that's great to hear because I, I was I was just thinking about it the other day. You know how wonder how Huntsman's going because I was in the department. I saw Lee Spittler wasn't in his office, so I couldn't ask him. So it's good to hear that it's going well. Um, You've done some work. Now you've done a lot of work on exoplanets. Then you took it a step further and you and you did some research on the moons of exoplanets. That must be so hard to to find moons of exoplanets. How do you go about doing something like that? Uh, yeah, it's actually very difficult. Like so far, we have discovered more than five thousand exoplanets, but not a single moon. Right, finding an exomoon is really difficult because the perturbations that they produce on the planet, right, or the changes that they produce on the stellar flocks of the star, right? Is basically like minuscule, right? It's really, really small. So detecting this is really difficult, right? So the work that I've been, I've been doing with other collaborators and other people from, from Colombia, from Argentina, France, so many people in the world, right? We've been trying to, to put some constraints from a theoretical perspective so we can help in that search of the exomoons, right? So we can help for the people that are trying to observe those exomoons to know where, where are the right places to look at, right? Because going for a blind search is even more difficult, right? But if we have, let's say, uh, some information about what types of planets, what types of stars, it's better to look at than then the search will be a bit easier. It doesn't mean that it's gonna be very simple, but at least that will make things easier, right? So we've been trying to, to find what kind of population, of planet population is better to that is better to, to have moons, right? So for instance, we found in one of, of, of our works from like maybe one year and a half ago, something like that, we found that there's a type of planet that preserves moons, right? More than other planets. Right, so these are planets uh, that we call giant planets, right? And according to the masses of these planets, there is a range in the mass where planets with that mass will will be more prone to preserve the moons. And if they preserve the moons, then we will be like allowed to to observe those moons given the right method and technology and everything else, right? So it's instead of going for a blind search, let's say for masses from zero point one to 20 uh, Jupiter masses, something like that, then we, we constrained that. We said like, no, we should be looking at these planets, planets with these masses, because these planets, it's more, it's more likely that these planets will preserve their moons, right? And so that's, that's what I've been doing, basically, is, is working from, from, a theoretical, from theoretical models to try to constrain the search for exomoons. And also exorings, that's another thing that I also do. Yeah, we're trying to, to find the first ring, that's a, a very, very challenging task because uh, rings are also very, they, they don't produce a lot of gravitational perturbations on the planets because they don't have enough mass to do that. But something that we can use with rings, for instance, is that they are huge, right? And they, they, they cover a big area of the stellar disk. So we can use transits to find these rings. So currently we're working on a model to, to use the light that is reflected from the rings 
right? So the, the sun or the star sends light and those rings, because of the material of those rings, some of them are composed of ice. Most of them have ices, right? So you will have the light being reflected off the rings and you can use that light to detect the ring, right? So we're working on a model and actually we, that's another word we did is uh, we developed a model where using that light reflected from the ring, we can detect planets that are orbiting in weird configurations, right? So basically when you have a, a star here and you have the planet passing in front of the star, you, you can detect the transit of the planet, right? Because the, the planet is, is eclipsing the star, so you can detect it. But sometimes this is not the configuration of the star. Sometimes you have configurations like this, where you have the star in the center, right? But the, the planet orbits like this and you are located here. So in that case, you are not able to see a transit because the, the, the planet is not eclipsing the star, right? So when that happens, we could use the rings of these giant planets to detect the planets. So that, that's another area that we're also working on. That's really cool. Um, what what needs to be what needs to change in astronomy in terms of the technology that we have available to make this these models a reality to actually be observed? We need more sensitivity, right? That's basically all we need. We need a bigger telescopes, and we need more sensitivity of the detectors, right? That's basically all we need, right? We need to, to be able to collect more light, right? And we also need that that light is analyzed properly, right? And for that, well, we need more, like better detectors, like better technology in terms of the cameras we use, right? But that's something that is already, it's already happening, right? So right now, if you remember from four months ago, the 25th of December, the James Webb Space Telescope was launched, right? And, and that, that will bring uh, lots of new information from the stars because with that telescope, we will be able to reach deeper, right? And also there's the stars that we already know, we will, be, we will be able to observe those stars in more detail, right? So this is a huge improvement over the Hubble telescope, right? We know that the James Webb is, all, is almost three times bigger than the Hubble. And, and we will be able to use the James Webb Space Telescope uh, to do this kind of searches. Actually, something that we already have, but we haven't analyzed a lot and that we should do more, we should do it, is using the databases that we already have. So we know, for instance, that a couple of years ago, there was another mission, the Kepler mission, right? And Kepler collected, tons, tons of data. And lots of that data is, is, is yet to be analyzed, right? We haven't analyzed the data, right? At least not using the models for exorings or exomoons that have been developed in the last couple of years, right? So something that we, we've been doing with a collaborator of mine is trying to, to create a machine learning algorithm, right? Trying to have a machine learning uh, algorithm that goes into these databases and is able to recognize uh, like signals that could belong to, to planets uh, and to rings and exons, right? So basically what we're trying to do is to train a machine learning algorithm to go into these databases and given the signal of a ring, try to recognize in that database full of signals if some of them are similar to that signal of a ring. And therefore, Doing that, we will have like uh, some candidates for rings or for exomoons, right? So we, we in, in all the data that we have collected so far, we might have discovered something, but we don't know yet. That that's the thing. There's so much data around that there could be a ring, there could be an exomoon around, but maybe no one's found it yet, 
right? So computers could help us to do that, right? We could just train and do and use machine learning and, and, and see if, if we can find something in those databases that are huge with tons of data. That's the issue with, with astronomy at the moment, right? There's just so much data. Oh yeah, now it's like we have so much data and, and we just need to, to analyze data, but it's so much that maybe we, we need to, to find other like other ways to do it, right? And right now, like it's, it's the boom on machine learning, right? Machine learning now is, is, the, is, is the way to go with so many things, right? And astronomy is one of those things. So we could use machine learning like easily to, to try to identify signals, signals that we have detected, but that we, maybe we don't know that those signals belong to a ring or to an exon. Yeah. Now, is that what you're working on at the moment or do you have something else really exciting going on? Uh, well, that's one of my projects right now. Like uh, that's something that I'm doing with a collaborator, but right now I'm working and most of my work, uh, or most of my time is spent uh, doing simulations of uh, tidal evolution of planets. So basically tidal evolution is something that occurs when you have two bodies interacting gravitationally, right? But too close, when they're too close together, right? So when you have a, a star and a planet, but they are like very far away from each other, you don't have this type of interactions. You don't have tidal interactions. At least they are not significant. They're tiny, right? So they're not important at all. But when you have planets orbiting very close to the host stars, then you have tidal interactions. And this becomes more significant because these tidal interactions will make the planet to change the orbit around the star, right? So right now, I'm working with something that we call short period and ultra short period planets, right? So these are planets like Jupiter, right? They're giants, they're giants made of gas, like 90% of gas, right? But these planets, uh, unlike Jupiter that orbits the sun, like every more than nine years, right? These planets orbit their stars in less than one day, right? So you have a planet like Jupiter, but orbiting closer than Mercury, right? That's something that has a lot of effects, right? So when you have a planet like Jupiter orbiting that close, then eventually this planet, because of tidal interactions, this planet will be pulled towards the star and eventually it will it will it will crash with the star right it will be disrupted right and this is interesting because this could lead to many other things right if you have a planet a giant planet that is destructed that is disrupted by the star right all of the material right that is left behind after the disruption of the planet could be used for something else right could be used for to create maybe a new planet a small planet right so one of the theories that uh, we're working on this right now, but something that came up last week was like, oh, what if like you have a giant planet, right? And this giant planet is orbiting that close that eventually it crashes with the star, it gets disrupted, all of the material is there, but suddenly you have this planet might, might have the moons, right? Usually giant planets have tons of moons, right? Many, many, many. So what if, one of those moons starts collecting the material left by the planet, right? So at the end, you could end up with a new planet, right? A smaller one, right? With a different composition, 
but at the end it's, it's like recycling the material from planets that were destroyed by the star right so that's uh, that's the one of the one of the important that's why in studying these planets that orbit that close it, it could be important right because uh, many other effects, many other consequences could arise from that. So basically, that's that's one of my focus. And right now, I'm working on a project that is studying these type of interactions of evolution, right? But in planets that have been discovered by TESS, right? That is one of the NASA, NASA mission. Uh, TESS is a telescope that is orbiting the Earth, right? And it's observing stars that are close to our solar system, right? And so far, TESS has discovered many, more than, I think, more than 100 or more than 200 exoplanets, at least confirmed exoplanets, right? Because candidates, we have a lot of candidates, right? But confirmed exoplanets, that's a different thing, right? So the thing is that among all of that number of, of planets that have been discovered, only 10 systems have been discovered to have a giant planet like Jupiter orbiting an M dwarf star, right? So M dwarfs are the most common star in the universe, right? We have tons of them. Most of the stars in the universe are M dwarfs, right? And these these stars uh, that TESS has discovered has they they have like giant planets like Jupiter orbiting very close, right? Which is not normal because these these stars because of the stellar mass, because the mass is very, very small, the planets, the Jupiters, these hot Jupiters shouldn't be there. They should be located in, in farther orbits, orbits far away from the star. But we're finding them there, right? And so far we have discovered 10 of them, right? And I think that number will keep increasing and increasing and increasing because we have tons of M dwarfs in, in, in space. So we will find more of them. The thing is that the interactions between an M dwarf, which is a smallest star, and a Jupiter that is a big planet, they are really important, right? They're really significant because you have a smaller star interacting gravitationally with a giant planet, right? So I, I, I've been doing that lately. Actually, right now I'm working on a paper, on a, a scientific article about this. I'm studying the evolution of these planets around M dwarfs. And, and I, I found some interesting steps of it. So I, this is a single out of work. I'm, I'm working alone on this. So it's, it's, it's a bit difficult when, when you have no collaboration, right? You have to do absolutely everything. So it's a bit more difficult, but, but yeah, I think it's, it's something really cool that I'd be submitting soon. Yeah, and is that, so that's the paper that's, that's gonna be coming out soon, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's something that I, I'm, I'm, I'm submitting very soon, I, I, I guess, well, I'm aiming for next week. <laughs> I, I, I'm aiming for next week. I've been working really hard the, the last couple of days on this. I'm aiming, yeah, by having this paper submitted maybe by Wednesday or Thursday next week. Uh, but yeah, but my, the last work that it was just published now, just a couple of maybe one month or two months ago, is it's called Chronomoons. So basically what we did is, uh, given that we don't have a Exomoon, exomoons discovered so far, right? There is a there is one candidate. There's only one candidate. There's only one exomoon that some people in the in, in the states uh, propose as an exomoon. They say like, okay, we have discovered exomoon. This is the candidate, right? The only problem with this candidate is that it's too big, right? They are saying that this is a moon that is the size of Neptune, which is crazy. There's like a moon, like giant, like moon, right? It's a moon that has the mass of Neptune 
and has the size of Neptune. So that is just like, come on, like that's not a moon, right? Like it's, it's, it's too big, it's too big. However, they say that it's a moon, right? So what we're proposing in this paper that we published just like two months ago is that it's actually not that big, that we could have that this object is a moon, but just a normal moon, but with a ring orbiting around, right? So you could have that, and because this object was discovered using transits, what you could have is just a normal moon with a big ring around, but when this whole structure is transiting the star, then you have a change in the stellar flux similar to that produced by a giant planet, right? So it's just saying like, okay, you might have detected something, but that's something, the size of that might be overestimated, right? Might be just you're calculating the wrong size, right? What you're saying is just that this moon is it's too big. It could be just a normal moon with a, a ring around. And what we did there in that paper was developing a model to justify this type of this type of object, right? So we call it a chronomoon because they, they chrono in, in Cronian in, in astronomy comes from Saturn, right? And they look, we have a moon with a ring, they look like a mini Saturn, right? They, they look like a, a small version of Saturn, right? So we call them chrono for that because of that similarity with, with Saturn, right? And and we and we found that these moons could produce that, that type of signal, right? That having a chronomoon orbiting a system could produce a signal that is as deep as the signal produced by a giant planet, right? And that that that's the reason why the paper was accepted and published because we we were able to connect the this theory of the chronomoons, which we haven't detected, right? This is just a theory, right? Because we haven't detected chronomoons, right? But using chronomoons, we could account for the same type of signal that has been found, right? So the thing is that even though we haven't discovered exomoons, right? Eh, sorry, chronomoons, right? There are some objects in the solar system that resemble chronomoons. We have three objects uh, in the asteroid belt, uh, Chiron, uh, Haumea, and Cariclo, right? These three asteroids, they have rings around. And we know that we, these rings have been discovered, right? So the thing is that if, if these objects, if these asteroids that are way smaller than a moon can have rings, a moon can also have them, right? A moon could also have those rings. So in this paper, we developed this, this model explaining how could that happen, right? How these rings could, could be there. And then by using the combination of a moon and a ring, we're trying to account for the signals that were discovered. So, so yeah, that, that was a very cool paper, actually. I, I think a press release uh, by Macquarie is, is going gonna, is gonna to come out in, in the next couple of days. So who was involved in this paper? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, uh, the team is composed of uh, like five people, uh, more or less, right? At least five people that were always working on, on these on these things and other people that sometimes collaborate with us right so we're trying to like my main like my main collaborator is is he's in chile right he's a very good friend of mine actually i think that's one of the reasons why we have been able to to produce a lot of science lately because we have a very good uh, friendship 
right? And with him, we're trying to, to include more undergrad students too. So we're trying to, to, to make our, our team a bit more diverse, right? So not only people that have PhDs and have lots of experience, I think that's not, that's not what we want because when I started doing research, I was in my underwear. When I started with research, I was in my like third year of undergrad. So I started like doing science or research very young, right? I didn't have a master's, I didn't have a PhD, nothing. I was just doing my undergrad. But I got involved with research, right? With some people that had more experience than me. And we're trying to do the same, right? So right now we have another project where we have two undergrad students. One of them is from Chile and the other is from here, from Macquarie. Right, is an undergrad student from the physics program, and she's gonna be doing some stuff about the spectroscopy of the rings. Right, so when you have these rings, because they are composed of different types of particles, right, you could have light, uh, you could have less light from some areas of the ring and more light light from a different area of the ring. Right, so what we're trying to to do is trying to develop a model to how to study the light coming after or coming from these rings right and depending on the composition of these rings then you will have different types of refraction reflection scattered light so we're just trying to develop a model to study the light coming from the rings both from a, a from a perspective that involves spectroscopy right and and that's what these two undergrad students are, are collaborating and they are helping us with that, which I, which I think is, is very good to, to include on the graphs. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.